Well, I'm, the way I'm going to approach this is I'm going to talk about what what we want the unions to be like. So our fantasy union, what a fantasy trade union would look like, if you like. Um, but not just because that's the sort of union that we're fighting for, but also because that kind of guides us in what we do as socialists. It, it guides us in how how we do our trade unionism, but also explicit what we do explicitly as socialists. So, um, Workers' Liberty Rail Workers have a document that we've had for years uh, called the Fantasy Union of Railway and Trans Rail and Transport Workers, which we've recently made into a video. Please watch it; it's on the Workers' Liberty YouTube channel. I'm going to kind of run through the main themes of that and maybe make some uh, suggestions about what that implies for what socialists do. So the first point of it is about industrial trade unionism, one industry and one union. And what's important for socialists here is that we are not chauvinists for any particular union against any other particular union. That doesn't prevent us saying when one union is doing better than another union or taking the right stance on something rather than the wrong stance. Um, it also means one industry, one union. I think people have recognised for a long time that means it's really divisive to have more than one union in a particular industry. So, for example, on London Underground, we have RMT, Aslev, Tessa and Unite. And that's great for the employer. That's really great for the employer because they can divide the unions against each other. We've got a classic going on on the tube at the moment where we're in the middle of a strike over a deal on night tube working, um, a strike by RMT against a deal done by management with Aslef, uh, which is a horribly divisive situation to be in. So for I think for a long time, socialists have recognised that one industry, one union means we don't want more than one union in each industry. I think recently over the last couple of decades in the era of mega mergers it's actually worth highlighting the flip side of that which is that we don't really want more than one industry and one union because when you get these huge big general unions that cover loads of industries it's even more distant they become even more distant from the workplaces um, where workers are organizing and fighting for their rights the next point of a fantasy union is that it is rooted in the workplace and again, I think this is really important for socialists. I think it's an easy trap for socialists to fall into to say, ah, oh, the union, right? You go to the branch meeting and you move a motion about the latest campaign your group's involved in. And a really good left-wing union is one that passes lots of left-wing motions at its branch meetings and its, at its conferences. But that means nothing for workers' struggle if you can't pull off a fight against the boss in your workplace. Um, what's really important is that you have the, so here's a really cynical way of looking at how even at a micro level, we win things off bosses, okay, is that you make it more brief for them to say no to you than to say yes to you. If you go along and ask for something, you demand something, whether it's a new sofa in a mess room or whether it's a shorter working week, okay, their instinct, the employer's instinct is going to say, is going to be to say no because it's going to cost them. It's going to cost them grief, effort, time, money. Okay. What, what you need to do is what trade unions need to do is convince them that saying no to you is going to cost them even more, right? So it's going to cost them grief from you. It's going to cost them industrial action. It's going to cost them whatever kind of pressure you can put on them. You need to make that grief greater than the grief of saying yes to you and doing the thing that you want. 
And if we haven't built up union strength in the workplace, then it's going to be really hard to exercise that level of pressure on the employer. And if socialists have been too busy moving motions at branch meetings about every political issue under the sun without paying attention to the workplace, um, then that is, that's the situation you're going to end up being in. So being rooted in the workplace is very, very important. A fantasy union would also be democratic from the top to the bottom. So that means that includes things like branch meetings, being accessible, knowing what on earth's going on. Actually happening would be a help in some sections of our movement. Um, but where decisions are taken and are carried out and where national policy is made democratically and, and is carried out once it's been made. Um, a, a shameful example of the opposite recently would be Unison um, voting directly against its own union's democratically agreed policy at Labour Party conference to raise the threshold of MPs uh, needed to nominate a leader candidate. It's also, I think, um, what goes hand in hand with, with democracy is... Uh, is to have more of the posts in the unions elected. Now, it's, it's obvious, you know, you elect your reps, you elect your branch officials, you elect your general secretary, you elect your national executive. But in lots of unions, you don't elect people who go and negotiate on your behalf. So they're speaking for workers, but workers haven't chosen who it is who does them. And that can't be right. And even in those unions where all the negotiating uh, roles are elected, like in the RMT that I'm in. There's also, there's, there's roles in the RMT that I think should be elected that aren't. And so I think in powerful, important union posts, such as, I don't know, the person who runs the, the, the union's education, right? The, the person who organises overall on equalities, the person who edits the union's journal. They should be elected. They should be elected because that's a way of making them present their programme for how that role is carried out to the electorate and getting a mandate for the electorate and getting the members more involved um, in what they're doing. I have to say, one of my proudest moments in the RMT um, was when I heard that a previous officer of the union had told someone that he was at the branch the night before. And uh, to, to, to quote what he said, Janine was there, so we had to do the elections properly. <laughs> So, yeah, let's get these things being done more, um, more democratically. Organising. A fantasy union would be an organising uh, union. So organising not just in the sense of having highly professional, glossy organising campaigns, although, you know, we, we, we ought to do things as professionally in the sense of competently as possible, but organising campaigns that rely first and foremost on workers recruiting other workers. Uh, going out around workplaces, getting people more involved. There's a kind of old adage that any organisation reproduces itself in its own image. So you want to get people involved, you get people like them to go out and get them involved and speak to them and recruit them and mobilise them. So socialists in the union should um, always be arguing for and participating in effective organising activities by unions. And alongside organising goes education. Um, like, like a lot of seasoned trade unions, I, I now do quite a lot of trade union tutoring, just come back from running a week-long course, and having effective education, which is not just about teaching people interesting facts, um, but is actually geared towards building the capacity of the union in the workplace by training up a whole, co whole cohorts of reps and activists 
um, to give them the confidence and the, the skills and, and the attitude, actually, the belligerent attitude to be able to take on the boss effectively in the workplace is very, very important. Because what we want, we want, socialists want unions to be fighting unions, to take on the boss. And although that might, might sound obvious, um, in a lot of unions, it's not necessarily obvious. There's, in a lot of unions, the leaders think their job is to make agreements with the boss with as little fight as possible. Um, and it, it's very important that we are, as socialists, always arguing for the union to take on the employers in a militant way. But it's equally important is that we don't, and, and this, this may be a problem that is more of a problem in RMT than in other unions, and a lot of you might go, cool, that'd be a nice problem to have, is the confusion of militancy with machismo, okay? So militancy doesn't mean how loud you shout. It doesn't mean how hard you thump the table. It doesn't mean how many meetings you walk out of, okay? What it means is mobilizing the most effective strategy to win. And mobilizing the most effective strategy to win means using imaginative tactics. It means thinking beyond the immediate workplace into wider communities and kind of allies, etc. But first and foremost, what it means is the disputes, the struggles against the employer being organized and led and run by the workers involved. Um, it's I always it always kind of makes my heart sink when. We have a strike and then members say, um, when, when's the union going to tell us what's going to happen next? And I kind of think, well, yeah, but it should be up to us what happens next. We should be the ones who are deciding what's happened next. Or, and, and then the rep might reply, we've got a mass meeting next week. I'm going to find out at that. And you think, well, no, hang on. We've got a mass meeting. You're going to take part in deciding what happens next. Not you're going to go there just to find out what happens next. Um. A fantasy union also needs to be one which is equally accessible and inclusive of all its members. So in all grades, all kinds of securities of employment, not just directly employed people, but subcontracted workers, casual workers, agency workers, etc. Um, also actively anti-discriminatory, involving men and women, uh, workers of all different races and ethnicities, etc. And actually, all our unions would say that they're brilliant on that, but all of them fall short. I've heard um, shocking, or they should be shocking anyway, stories from women in every trade union, I think, about how they've been treated at union events by union officials in a deplorably sexist way. And no matter how, how much our unions say they are committed to being anti-discriminatory, I'm afraid this is just go, it's going on everywhere. And it's really important duty of socialists to challenge that. Whether that's challenging it at work when work makes some, makes some dodgy comment about immigrants, or whether it's actually taking the fight to the top of the union where what tends to happen at the top of the union is that bureaucracy and bigotry kind of work hand in hand to create a hostile atmosphere um, for members of minority groups. Um, a fantasy union would be a political union. And one of the things that socialists need to be doing is arguing for the union to have a, an active and effective political voice. And this is, I don't know, I, th I think it's something that's been kind of lost over the last couple of decades, in, largely in response to the Labour Party being so crap. 
that um, some unions have left the Labour Party. The RMT's left the Labour Party and stayed out. The FBU left and then it came back and now the Baker's Union has left. But there's still, even on the left of the unions, the idea that the approach that the union's involvement in politics is kind of almost like a shopping trip. Like there's an election coming up, which one of these candidates uh, or which one of these parties do we want to support rather than an active fight for what the union wants. Um, and again, this is something that needs to be done more democratically. I'm very disappointed in Unite that um, to, to find that Unite makes a lot of noise about fighting within the Labour Party. And it does fight within the Labour Party better than, say, Unison or Usdor does. However, to find out that Unite, the General Secretary simply appoints the union's representatives on the Labour Party's national executive, rather than them being elected, rather than being subject to membership control of what they're doing and what they're fighting for, um, I think is quite a disappointment. A fantasy union would also see itself as part of a wider movement, um, part of a wider trade union movement, um, part of a wider international movement, um, part of a wider international movement, meaning showing solidarity with workers in struggle in other countries, rather than meaning, um, you know, globe trotting by union officials going on junkets, um, being entertained by dodgy governments and dodgy fake unions. And finally, a fantasy union would be one in which the rank and file organises independently. Because even if we've, you know, thoroughly democratised the union and got the rank and file in charge to, to a great extent, we can't uh, rest on our laurels because the drive to be bureaucratic is, is, is still there. So if we can outline that that's what our fantasy union would be like, then we get to think about how well not just our unions measure up but how well the left in the unions measure up uh not well in most cases better in some cases than others but we have the ongoing problem of the union bureaucracy holding workers back we obviously have um, a kind of right wing in the unions that is more concerned about having a friendly relationship with employers and governments and calming down workers struggle rather than firing up but I think we also have um, an, an inadequate left, I'm afraid. I think the problem is different in different unions. So I think in some unions you have a problem where the left thinks what the left is, is just all the left wing groups meeting together with some left wing individuals. And they don't have an orientation to rank and file struggle and to involving militant workers who might not yet consider themselves to be especially political. And that's a problem. On the other hand, in other unions, such as mine, um, you have that opposite problem, which is a, a, um, a kind of resistance to being organised at all. Um, so the people you would consider to be, the activists you consider to be to the left, to be the left in the RMT, don't want to set up an organisation. All they want to do is talk about um, being a member-led union, which is a very vague and non-specific term. Um, the problem is what happens when you don't organise is that it becomes what it is in practice, which is just a, um, repeated election campaigns for self-declared left candidates. There's not even any structure to set out what their platform is or decide, who, decide even who the candidate is. It's just one election campaign after the others where we support this person because they're, you know, a good bloke and it is usually a bloke and, uh, and because we want to be beat the awful bu bureaucrats. 
Um, so we need to think about what socialists going to advocate in terms of organisation, whether we want reform caucuses to propose specific ways of democratising the union, which would be a good idea, whether we want to have um, a forum for socialists to organise and talk about politics and be socialists. Part of that's a good idea. But fundamentally, what we need to do is to build the confidence of rank and file activists by organising them. So I guess in summary, what socialists should do is our own version of what unions should do, which is agitate, educate and organise. So socialists need to agitate for um, a more confident, militant workers struggle, what that would mean, what that would look like, what we need to do to make that happen. Um, changes in the union, policies for the union to adopt, etc. We need to educate. So um, we need to, as socialists, be constantly discussing, reading, talking about, learning about the history of our movement, um, about different kinds of workers' struggles, about political issues beyond immediate workers' concerns, about Marxist understanding of the workplace and how issues and, and, and the nature of things like wages and overtime and all kinds of stuff like that. We need to build our own um, layer of activists who have a confident understanding of the important issues. And finally, we need to organise because we're not going to be able to do that agitating and educating effectively unless uh, we organise. And I shall leave it there and hand over the baton to Josh. Right, so hi everyone, I'm, I'm Josh. Um, I'm a supporter of Workers' Liberty. Um, and as Daniel's already said, uh, an activist in the UCU. That's the, uh, the trade union that's active within the higher education sector, but specifically for people within the higher education sector who are either academics or research staff or people involved in research-related activities. So project coordination um, doesn't include everybody within the university campus, as Janine said earlier about industrial union. Uh, industrial unionism, that's one of the checks that UCU fails. Um, so I kind of wanted to, to start out by saying, like, very broadly, I'm just going to take this out of my chin to point this out, um, what, what broadly I think the role of a socialist is within a trade union. And then I'm going to talk about my experience within the UCU and the recent history of our union and how um, activists have responded to some of the struggles uh, for democracy and for, um, uh, for winning power in the workplace in the way that Janine described is so important. And I think basically the number one thing we should be doing right, is causing trouble. Um, we need to basically be having arguments. I, I think if we're not having arguments all the time, then we're not doing our job right. Uh, and that's not just arguments with uh, management or your boss, it's arguments with your colleagues. As Janine's pointed out already about uh, issues relating to workplace racism, about uh, workplace disability issues, and also within the union as well, because you know, these, are, these, are, these are far from perfect organisations. And unless we're having arguments as socialists within them about what we want them to be doing and what we want them to be fighting on, um, we're, we're simply not doing our jobs properly. I think it's our job to build disputes. I think it's our job to build power. Um, and, and that's coupled to actually building power within the union as well as the workplace. So building union democracy um, as, as, as alongside other things uh, such as union policy. Um, so yeah, my experience has been within two trade unions. Before I was um, active in the UCU, I was uh, a member in Unite, in an inactive branch. Um, and my experience within the UCU is in an unrecognised branch as well. So I've kind of got a slightly different experience from a lot of uh, 
a lot of people are, are active in most trade unions today. Um, I guess one of the positives, however, in our sector is we still have um, a level of national bargaining, which means that even though I'm in an unrecognised branch, we've still been able to take action over um, issues of, uh, of uh, the rubric nationally. So, for example, our pension scheme, for example, some of the, uh, the issues I'll talk about in the, in the four fights disputes so I'll, I'll describe more. So, yeah, a lot of what I'm going to say is specific to UCU, but I think a lot of the lessons are, broadly speaking, more general. So why I wanted to, to, to um, jump straight on from what Janine was, was talking about in terms of the fantasy union was say, okay, well, how does the UCU stack up against this, this fantasy union? Are all roles elected? Well, no, they're not. Um, a lot of the, uh, the national officer positions remain unelected. Um, we elect our general secretary, we, we elect uh, committees, um, and those committees, uh, largely speaking, are unaccountable to branches and members, other than having an election every uh, few years to, to put uh, different people onto them. Um, in terms of what some of the officials are earning, um, broadly speaking, some of the national officers are earning near to the median salaries of people within our sector, which isn't a bad thing. Um, that's, that's quite different to a lot of unions. On the other hand, our general secretary is still earning six figures. Now, I put that in the context of a higher education sector where uh, we're increasingly being marketized and um, contracts are being cut down uh, and casualized. And you find that, you know, as a PhD student on 15 grand a year or a postdoc on maybe 20, 25 grand a year, when your general secretary is earning four or five times more than you, can they really relate to your struggle? Okay. So on that, on that, in, in that sense, I think we're, we're far from having a, a fantasy union in terms of what our um, elected officials are at. Um, in terms of Congress policies, I can say more on this, but simply put, no, they're not all acted on. Who decides on industrial strategy? A various number of our committees. So there's some level of democracy there and there's ways for us to implement and uh, influence them. But as I'll describe in the, um, in the most recent dispute, there's, um, there's still a conflict between what uh, people in the headquarters would, rather, would, would, would have, us, have us do and what our um, elected um, uh, committees decide on industrial action, um, think, is, think is the way forward. Um, are we building cross higher education union struggles? And I think uh, other than a few um, good local examples, there's very little coordination at a national level between Knight, between Unison, uh, the, the GMB in some instances, the IWGB in some London examples, and the UCU. And these are all unions that are active in higher education. So the UCU has had a pretty good recent history of building strikes on university campuses. The IWGB has been pretty successful, I would say, in some of the uh, London campuses to resist uh, outsourcing and fight for insourcing. But broadly speaking, there is no national strategy within HE to build something that looks more like a cross higher education um, industrial union. So on that level, like, the UCU is, um, is um, is winning strikes for its own members, but not necessarily building the struggles of others who are active in our sector. Um, do we have a rank and file? Uh, I guess that should really say, do we have a rank and file organisation? We did. That is now a, a moribund email list. So there's still something that needs to be fought for there. And importantly, I think this, um, this, this strike series that's about to emerge next week is going to give us an opportunity to build something more like that. Um, density. The UCU in some departments is pretty good, but in my own, I think we're about five or ten percent of our of our staff in our department are members of the UCU, which really um, uh, acts against our ability to build workplace power. Um, 
I think the numbers are somewhere between four and 500,000 people in the UK currently work in higher education. Um, now, the UCU has about 130,000 members, but that also includes our members who work in prison education, in adult education, uh, in further education within colleges. I'm not sure exactly what the number is within HE, but it wouldn't shock me if it was more like 40 or 50,000, and therefore our density at a national level is probably only something like 10%. Um, so there's still a lot that we need to do in terms of recruitment. Um, I've already said the sectors that we organise in. Are we active? Yes. Um, but broadly speaking, is, is higher education an important terrain to organise? And I would argue that yes, and it becomes more important to organise. Um, if we look at some of the, uh, the cities in which we've got big universities, for example, uh, in Cambridge, where I am, uh, there are two universities and they employ about 10 to 15 percent of the population. Now, that's massive. I think they are the single biggest employer in that city. And this is likely true in many other towns and cities across the UK. It means that in terms of um, terrains for building uh, workplace power and struggle, these are only becoming more important as, as time goes on. So um, I want to talk about the UCU a little more recent, uh, in terms of its um, recent history. So it's been pretty successful at building, um, building struggles and strikes. Um, We've had uh, very recently a ballot result come back that is over the last four times of asking at a, at a, at a UK wide level, we've, um, we've got dozens of branches out on strike. Um, I think the, the, um, the example I think is probably most famous is the 2017-18 round over the pensions, um, which saw a huge upsurge in activity within our union. Um, it resulted in the the formation of a rank and file organization and it ultimately um, led to the ejection of our general secretary who cut short our strike um, quite simply put um, our membership during that period of about five or six weeks uh, between february and april uh, 2018 grew by tens of thousands and the reason was we had something to fight over we had something to fight for and that was to defend pensions and it showed that in the course of struggle not only did we massively expands the ability of our union to fight, uh, but we also took leaps forward in terms of the democratic battles that um, we can and still need to have within our union. Um, in 2019-20, we had another round. So that, fir that first round was just about pensions, and the second round was about pensions, but also pay, uh, casualised contracts. It was about workload. There was a whole raft of issues that um, had been sidelined within higher education because, broadly speaking, UCU membership previous to this was dominated by people who had basically at senior points in their careers, whereas the strikes actually brought a lot of younger people, PhD students, postdocs, people who are more likely to be casualised into the union. And they brought to the fore issues that are affecting them, like having a shit contract or none at all. Um, and what this ultimately meant was the union is now fighting on issues that is affecting all of its members, not just those in senior positions who have had you know, a permanent job for many years. Unfortunately, those strikes were ended by coronavirus, so we never really got to an end in that dispute. Um, but it's been picked up again more recently. So over the last year, there's been a lot of local battles within UCU branches, mainly last year characterised by uh, issues of COVID safety, uh, the... the um, I guess a similar fight to what was happening in the ANU about no return to unsafe workplaces. But in HE, there was a lot, um, uh, a lot of fights around workload. So lecture halls are enormous. You can't put 
400 people into the same room in a time of a you know an airborne pandemic. So uh, a lot of lecturers and, uh, and and teaching staff within HE were being asked to um, continue teaching but shift all of their work online. So there was a lot of issues around workload and basically unfair expectations for for, for HE staff. Um, over the last year, then of course, because of university campuses being shut, uh, some students not going back, universities missing out on rental income, there's been a fallout in terms of the, the funding universities have. Um, and this has uh, this culminated in a, a, a series of uh, redundancy rounds that were called for in Leicester and Liverpool, and more recently, restructuring operations that have been trying to push through places like Goldsmiths and the Royal College of Arts. I mean, Goldsmiths is a very live dispute. In fact, they uh, started a three-week strike on Tuesday and they need all the help that we can give them. Um, but we did reballot at a national level over this recent period, again, over these issues and uh, actually had some, some good success. So the things that we were balloting over, pensions, I don't want to um, go into this in too much detail, but broadly speaking, this is another third cut to what people can expect in retirement. And this is after losses over the last decade of about £240,000 on average. So people in the room can't see. Um, I mean, that's, that's an enormous amount of money that it's just been taken off people uh, within, within HE. Um, in terms of the, the other issue that we were balloted on, this four fights issue, um, there's been, again, a decade of uh, stagnating wages. I think it's about 20% the real terms cut to, uh, to income that people have seen in, within higher education. Um, the number of people on full, uh, fixed term and permanent contracts has fallen. I mean, if, you, if you've got a permanent contract and you work in university, you're doing pretty well. That probably accounts for like one in three or something like that um, full-time teaching staff, um, which is actually when you think about virtually any other workplace that any of us have worked in, that's, that's quite astonishing really how few people there are who actually have something that's a permanent um, a permanent position that, that gives them some security. I've spoke about workloads, but there's also a lot of equalities issues. Um, in terms of the gender pay gap, I think it's of the order on average about 16, 17% between men and women within university campuses. And also there's, there's a further gap and that's in terms of BME uh, staff and in some instances earning 30% less for the same jobs. Um, in, in HE. So there are a lot of very, very important issues that we have to fight over. Um, we've got 154 branches. Basically, the results meant that 60 of them, I think it's 58 um, specifically, can, can now go on strike. Um, and there's some overlap between which ones are just about the pensions and which are about the four fights. So I guess it's less important in this discussion which is which. Um, but it is about one in three of our branches, but it covers about 60% of our members. So that's a significant fraction of our, uh, of our membership who, as of Wednesday next week, um, are able to now go on strike over these things. Um, so I think one of, one of the important points that um, Janine's already made earlier is about uh, membership control over our union and headquarters control or control by bureaucrats. And already in this dispute, we've had to have a fight with, with, um, with our general secretary. So uh, as soon as the ballot results came out, um, a, a day passes and our general secretary uh, goes on to a live stream and basically says, this is the way forward. I think we should do this, 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 and this, um, which is kind of called the Grady plan by, by, by a number of us. And the idea was, even though 
We've got 50 odd branches who, who can go on strike now over um, the four fights issues. That's the casualization workload issues. Um, we should reballot everybody in January on an aggregated basis to try and get everybody out on strike. Um, that we only need to worry about uh, targeted reballots of some of the, uh, the pensions only strike branches. But there's an issue there because our national um, conference agreed that these are related. You can't fight over pensions and not fight over all these other issues because they all are, uh, thought of basically fall out from how HE has been marketized over recent years. So this is one way. How long have I got? Five minutes. Five minutes down. Okay, I'll do what I can. Um, this, I mean, this is one way in which, like, our, our um, you know, our general secretary was arguing for a position that ran counter to our to our nationally agreed policy. Um, fortunately, uh, those active in the union were organised. Um, the higher education committee that ultimately makes its decision through this plan out, um, and rightly so, in my view. Um, and more recently, as of a few days ago, we now know that there's going to be a series of rebalance that can basically get about 80% of our uh, members out uh, by the end of January. Um, so I think there's, there's some important things um, that we've argued for as, um, as workers' liberty members and supporters within HE about the immediate steps of the union. Um, and that involves cross-union activity. That involves getting unison, unite. Uh, IWGB, GMV members on site, involved in our dispute as best we can. It means building staff-student um, solidarity. And that means like, if, if, if there are student activist groups that are talking about occupations, us as workers should be telling them to absolutely do that. Um, I've put a picture up here from the last round of strikes from uh, Cambridge Old Schools. That's now been occupied, I think, five times in the last 10 years. Every time, um, um, bar one, I think, was around a UCU strike. Um, we need to get involved and help our colleagues rebalance and win. And we need to get our members out to picket lines. There's some horrible memories from 2019-20 when effectively uh, people got, got burned out during that period. Um, and I think there's a lot we have to do within the union to convince our own members that striking will work and does work. Um, there are some problems we have to get around. So I think in terms of cross-union activity, actually circumventing the anti-union laws is a massive issue. Uh, uh, Unite can't take solidarity action in, um, in terms of uh, downing tools in, in, on behalf of our strike because of Thatcher's anti-union laws. Um, that's a huge problem and it means that we've got something to do within our union to fix that. We need to campaign to ab abolish basically every law that stops um, unions from taking um, joint action together. In terms of student-staff solidarity, I think there's problems in terms of like, what management can do to victimise students. And we need to speak out against management when they're victimising students. They have done in recent years when they've taken um, uh, occupation actions or actions to support our struggle. Um, I've said a couple of those things, so I'm going to jump on because I appreciate that I've, I've got very little time left. So I think broadly speaking... Like, what is it that we can be doing and should be doing, certainly within the UCU, connecting students and staff and supporting these efforts. Um, but I think it's important that as members, we, we don't let our leadership bury aspects of our dispute that they think are less important than we do. It's our union and it's our fight. And we're not going to, you know, as socialists, let uh, someone who, you know, ascribes to be on the left from uh, ignoring a whole bunch of the issues that we think are absolutely vital for, you know, having a decent uh, uh, job, um, and um, um, set of conditions in our workplace within HE. Um, longer term, I think there's a fight we have to have 
to ensure that we can take proper industrial action that involves all of the unions on campus. Um, as, a, as Workers' Liberty members, supporters, we've produced strike bulletins for this first round and we'll be producing these throughout. And that's because we want to try and organise this struggle. We want to build the rank and file. We need an organisation that's actually pushing for democracy in our union, but also building um, militant fights that are actually going to um, uh, get us to a stage where, you know, we're not just going out on strike and, you know, expecting to get a few of our demands, but we're going out on strike and we're winning everything that we're asking for. Um, I should probably move there to summarise because I think I've used my time. Um, so, yeah, I think, broadly speaking, UCU is a, is a long way from being a fantasy union, but in many ways it's probably better than a lot of unions in the UK now. Um, there's still a lot we have to do, though. Um, I think these, uh, this strike round that we've got, again, we've got another great opportunity to build union democracy, to build workplace power. And I'm going to be doing everything I can to get um, every person I possibly know down to our pickets, everyone that I work with out on strike over the next um, three days next week. And I basically call on everyone here who's listening, who's in this room, uh, to print out a bunch of our strike bulletins, get down to the picket lines and, and get them to do so as well. So I'll stop there. Thank <laughs> you.